you know, there, there were plenty of instances where, where Ventavia should have immediately stopped enrolling based on Pfizer's own protocol and alerted them. They would miss a signature and I would flag it. And a day or two later, I would come back and that data point or that signature would just be there. So when I'm looking at the informed consent form and I'm comparing the patient signature, which I have on a copy of his driver's license that we made as part of you know, his demographic information, the signatures didn't match. There were three employees back from August of 2020 who were disciplined for falsifying data. So this was a problem that, that existed before I even came. For months, the vaccine was stored in a minus 70 freezer, but it still didn't meet the parameters of what, what, how it was supposed to be stored. So we have no idea whether or not that vaccine was stable at that, at that time. So the vaccinator, the person preparing the vaccine and the person injecting the vaccine, which per Pfizer's own protocol should be a medical professional, but at the location in Fort Worth, the unblinded vaccinator had zero medical experience and her job right before coming to Ventavia was at a taco restaurant. So Ventavia made millions off of this clinical trial at the risk of patients, safety, welfare, and, uh, and integrity didn't matter to them. You know, this clinical trial data is, is fraudulent. It's based on data from not just one, not just two, but three different clinical trial sites who were all doing the same thing. They had no regard for patients, and that's what I've just been screaming from the top of my lungs for so long for somebody to please hear me because these are people that are volunteering themselves to research and they deserve more respect than that. Brooke Jackson, thank you for uh, joining us today and taking time out to uh, sit down and talk about what's happening in your life. 20 years ago when you started in the medical industry, did you ever think you'd find yourself where you are today? That's, a, that's an easy answer and it's no. Um, I've been in my industry now for going on 20 years. I think it's 18 and a half at this point. Uh, I started out as a clinical research coordinator and that was at the site level. So when I started, you know, I was, I was tasked with inviting patients to participate in clinical research, um, going through their medical history, seeing if they qualify, really worked my way up from <clears throat> just a coordinator, not just a coordinator, but that was my, that was, uh, my job title, to a clinical trial manager, uh, director of operations. In my position as a director of operations, I, uh, the company I was working for was very similar to Ventavia in that they were responsible for managing patients in different studies for, excuse me, for different sponsors and uh, enrolling them and following them, managing um, the conduct of the study from start to finish. So Pfizer is the pharma, the pharmaceutical company is also considered the sponsor. The 
sponsor themselves will contract with an organization called a clinical research organization or a CRO or contract research organization. You'll hear it referred to sometimes. Pfizer would contract with ICON and then ICON was tasked with certain responsibilities and one of those was, was for ICON to locate and contract with the sites. So you can consider Ventavia to be third party to Pfizer. So the phase three is um, the phase of the trial that enrolls the most clinical trial participants. For Pfizer's vaccine study, we were looking to enroll, you know, approximately 40 plus thousand patients. So at that particular stage, you know, it, it can sometimes get busy, but um, it's very important, like you mentioned, to have and make sure that those trials are controlled, um, randomized, they are either blinded or unblinded, depending on the protocol. In Pfizer's vaccine study, it was important for um, some of the staff that were working on the trial to stay and um, stay blinded. And that was one of the things that I noticed early on was, was the unblinding of clinical trial participants. So the total number of participants when I started in September of 2020, there were and this is between all three sites, but again, I was just the regional director of two. We had another director who was in charge of the third site in, in Houston, Texas. And at the time that, that I started, there were approximately 1,200 patients that were enrolled between all three of the sites. Right away, when I, when I walked into Ventavia, the clinic was so busy. We had a five exam rooms. There were people when I, when I was touring the clinic that were waiting in the hallway, in the reception area. It was just, it was just kind of chaotic is, is the way that I've described it. I've been involved in other, other trials that were, that were heavily enrolling at, at certain points. And you know, you do have people wait obviously, but they were just outside of the clinic in the, um, imagine a, like a professional building where there's multiple doctor's offices mm -hmm. and you can go from floor to floor and you know, floor one would be a cardiologist's office and floor three was Ventavia's, floor four was an obstetrician office, obstetrician's office. And people were, were outside of the clinic waiting in this long hallway and just folding chairs, people inside the clinic waiting in the waiting area. And then even people inside where the exam rooms were who were kind of lined up outside of an exam room in the laboratory area that we had. So it just, it seemed, it seemed off to me. It wasn't anything like I'd seen before. In September, when I, when I started working there, they were at the point in the trial where they were enrolling into, into the study, into the vaccine study and others as well. There were, they were not just participating in, in Pfizer's, you know, vaccine trial. They were doing RSV studies. They were doing uh, C. diff studies, pneumonia studies. They, they, they had, a ton of research going on there. So, you know, um, people were there for, for different reasons. Mm -hmm. The majority of the people that were there then were p uh, patients that were interested in getting into the study. When I was there on the first day and met some of the coordinators that were, were seeing these study patients, there were only four of them. And we needed probably triple, triple I'm sorry. It's okay. You want to handle it? Yeah. Definitely understaffed. That was one of the first things besides, you know, just how few, few exam rooms we had that I noticed, uh, the number of clinical trial staff. 
again, I, th I think, you know, to fairly see the number of patients that we were actually seeing on a, on a daily basis, we're talking sometimes 20, sometimes 40, sometimes 60. And the screening visit, and, and that's the visit where the, the patients introduced to the clinical trial, where you go over the specifics of the informed consent form, which was really long. It was 20 plus pages of information about the study that, that it's our responsibility as researchers to make sure that these patients are fully aware of the potential risks that they face during their participation. We were not doing that properly. We were not ensuring that the patient understood what those risks were. We were not helping them to understand their responsibilities in participating in a study and what visits they needed to complete. There was an e-diary that captured their symptoms after, after the shot. If you've never participated in a clinical trial before, it's not that it's complicated, but you know, and especially if you're using a device that we provision to you to capture your symptoms, or if we have to download an application on your phone, it takes time to explain that and to go over what's gonna happen on day one and day 19 to 21, to follow up month one, to follow up month 20, you know, six and 24. So I would say in my experience that explaining a trial like this, a, a design like this, that it would have taken me with each patient an hour plus. And probably until I got my, um, my wording down and, and how to like walk the, walk the patient through the trial, um, you know, once I got my practice in, um, in the way that I explain it, that could certainly speed up. But what I saw the first time that, that I, I shadowed one of my clinical research coordinators was not an informed consent. She knew that this patient, they had a recruiting department, so she knew the patient wanted to participate in the study. So she went through it briefly, but had the pages like tabbed where the patient needed to sign. And maybe she was nervous because I was there, I don't know but it just wasn't a, a, a full and complete informed consent. So with her, you know, the patient's permission, I was in the room, of course, but I took over that informed consent process for this coordinator, and I made sure that this one patient was, was properly consented. Um, so, so lack of informed consent, and while we're on that subject, there were many times when I was auditing the charts at location one or location two, it didn't matter, I was finding the same thing, mm -hmm. where they would miss a signature, they meaning the coordinator or even you know the patient would miss the place where, where there was a signature required and there was multiple places, multiple pages. And so I would, I would you know, flag that and come back and another signature, the signature would all of a sudden appear. And this happened not just informed, on informed consent, but in the study documents that we were um, uh, using to collect data points. You know, there would be something missing and I would flag it. And a day or two later, I would come back and that data point or that signature would just be there. Mm -hmm. 
So when I'm looking at the informed consent form and I'm comparing the patient signature, which I have on a copy of his driver's license that we made as part of you know, his demographic information, the signatures didn't match. And you know, going back through some of the emails that, that I was copied on from as far back as August of 2020, so even before I started, I was forwarded these emails and I start to go through them and the auditors or quality control or quality assurance personnel were finding the exact same things that I were. There were three employees back from August of 2020 who were disciplined for falsifying data. So this was a problem that, that existed before I even came. What should the process have been? Well, when you have to find out why, why, why was that done? Yeah, it you almost know. suggests that if they're missing signatures, it's because they're not actually covering the pages with the patient. Exactly. In the informed consent process. Is that? It, that's a, that's a, 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 definitely a fair assessment, you know, in speed and rush and haste. <clears throat> and, and as I watched this clinical trial progress, and even though I was only there for 18 days, I, I have a trained eye. This is, I'm an expert in the clinical trial process, especially from a site level. Um, I'm a trained clinical trial auditor. This is what my eyes look for. So when I'm noticing these differences in signatures, that's something that I would have immediately reported to the Institutional Review Board you know, and, and, and determined why, why that happened. Why did you forge the signature? Who forged the signature? But it, you know, th that would have been where I started and definitely to alert the, the, the sponsor, Pfizer in this case. You know, there, there were plenty of instances where, where Ventavia should have immediately stopped enrolling based on Pfizer's own protocol and alerted them. One was to the unblinding of the clinical trial participants. Now I wanna be very clear, there was a point that Pfizer actually unblinded all the clinical trial participants. I believe that was about six months after. You're probably and, right. And then they allowed the, the unvaccinated to take the vaccine. Right. So there was a crossover at, at some point, and I just don't want to misspeak about the date. Um, but this is before that happened. So before Pfizer said everybody that's, that's, that wants to cross over and actually get the vaccine that originally received placebo, that's okay. We're allowing that. So before that happened, Ventavia unblinded every single one of those 1,200-ish clinical trial participants. And we talked about the gold standard, randomized clinical trials. These were supposed to be blinded. The bias that that potentially injects into a clinical trial is just the, the magnitude of what that, ha that has the potential to do. I, I, I can't understate, you know, or overstate. Rather, it, it was just sloppy. You know, I've heard it described sloppy very often. And that's certainly what it was. But again, per Pfizer's protocol, when we were alerted to these patients being unblinded, we should have stopped enrolling and contacted Pfizer and let them know that there's this, there's this unblinding that happened. What was the reason that Ventavia gave for doing the unblinding? <clears throat> They didn't realize 
that in the source document worksheets that every site has the ability to create on their own. Some of the clinical trial sites that participated in the study would have done everything electronically. Ventavia did everything manually. So when, when we're seeing a patient and we go into the exam room, we have a, a paper chart that every piece of data is, is written on paper. And so it, think of it as, as, again, a worksheet, an instruction. You know, at this visit, you do this, this, and this. At the next visit, you do that, that, and that. Um, in the instructions on the bottom of the randomization page that, you know, um, listed the screening number, the randomization number, um, there were other things that were collected on this one particular sheet, but they made an error and put in the bottom of the instructions that the randomization scheme should be placed right behind that worksheet. So the coordinators who were following these instructions followed those instructions by printing out um, and making a copy of that randomization scheme that they should not have had access to and putting it in the chart for all of the blinded staff okay. had access, including the investigator. So when you say unblinding, you're talking about the Ventavia staff who are interfacing with the patients. Are, are, were the patients themselves unblinded uh, prematurely? There was definitely opportunity for patients to see whether or not they were getting the vaccine or placebo because it was left out yeah. on a counter that the patients were sitting right next to. So if they knew by chance that their screening number was 11281001, if they knew that number was assigned to them and then they saw the container and, and you know, the, it was definitely possible to, to to make that determination. The second thing that, that would have warranted immediate, immediately stopping the trial and alerting Pfizer would have been to the improper storage of the vaccine in terms of, of the temperature. So if you remember, remember in the very beginning, the, the vaccine had to be stored at minus 70. And so, you know, we, we had that capability but what Ventavia did not realize was that Pfizer's vaccine was being stored at a temperature outside of that range. So for months, the vaccine was stored in a minus 70 freezer, but it still didn't meet the parameters of what, what, how it was supposed to be stored. So right. we have no idea whether or not that vaccine was stable at that, at that time. So almost what you're describing, there's, I guess I'm taking it, there's temperature logs inside the freezer and those temperature logs showed that it did not stay within defined parameters required by Pfizer? Exactly. Okay. Yes. And do we even know what that, what potential effects that has on the vaccine? I mean, at the mo at the time, no, certainly, you know, they, they weren't looking at it. They didn't think to look at it. It was just, they were so busy just trying to make sure that they could bring more patients in. You know, Pfizer was, or excuse me, Ventavia was paid on, a, mainly on a per patient basis. So every patient that they enrolled into that clinical trial, they were paid for. There were other, you know, obviously other things that, that you get 
compensated for. For example, you know, startup fees, which can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. In my experience with this type of study, I never saw financials at Ventavia. The CEO's mother handled all that. But I imagine, again, this is just based on experience, that every one of those patients that they enrolled was, was approximately $10,000. So Ventavia made millions off of this clinical trial at the risk of patients' safety, welfare, and uh, and integrity didn't matter to them. You know, this clinical trial data is, is fraudulent. It's based on data from not just one, not just two, but three different clinical trial sites who were all doing the same thing. There were problems similar to what I'm describing at one site happening at, across all clinical trial sites. There were <clears throat> unblinded vaccinators, so the vaccinator, the person preparing the vaccine and the person injecting the vaccine, which per Pfizer's own protocol should be a medical professional, and that's, that's defined in different ways. But at the location in Fort Worth, the unblinded vaccinator had zero medical experience, and her job right before coming to Ventavia was at a taco restaurant. And I'm from, I'm from Texas, I love a good taco, but you know, this is just the kind of, um, mismanagement of the clinical trial all around. I mean, there, if, if it's not one thing, it's another. The I, I want to take you back real quick sure. just to the freezers because yeah. what Pfizer's told us, the reason they're stored at minus 80 is to prevent the mRNA from degrading. Mm -hmm. So, and you're saying the temperature controls while they were kept cold, they weren't kept to the spec that Pfizer provided. So potentially that sets up a situation, and this, please expand on this and let me know if this is correct, but it seems like that would set up the situation where you're injecting more of a placebo than an active biologic, is that? Absolutely, and per Pfizer's protocol, if it is stored outside of those parameters, like you mentioned, it, any of the vaccine that was stored improperly should immediately have been quarantined and not given to anybody else. And there were months, two plus, maybe even closer to three, where it was outside of that range. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow is right. Yes, every day, every day that I was there, I said wow about something. There's, there's and even still today, I will find something in the new release of data and, and mining through that over the last you know week or 10 days, I find something that shocks the hell out of me every single day. One of the things that shocks me the most is that the FDA, the Department of Justice, other branches within our government have known about this since September 25th of 2020 and still have not been to Ventavia site to even investigate my allegations. So I contacted the FDA September 25th of 2020 and spoke to a person on the phone who directed me to their website and I filled out a complaint and I did that about 9.30 in the morning on the 25th of September 2020 again and about six hours later I was getting a call from Ventavia that I was being fired. I 
was on my termination paperwork. It says that I was not a good fit. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't a good fit because I refused to be complicit in, in what they were doing, the fraud that they were committing. On the 17th of September, after speaking with two other directors, I made <clears throat> the decision to recommend to the two um, managing members slash owners and other members of the leadership team that we immediately stop enrolling in the clinical trial and alert Pfizer to what we'd found, especially with the unblinding and the improper storage. And, and I was surprised they actually agreed that we should take a time out. But what shocked me was the text message that went out right after this call had ended. And the text message was from one of the managing members, her name is Olivia Ray, and she and the other managing member, owner, wanted to make sure that we all had a consistent message for Pfizer. And instead of being honest about what we were finding in the clinical trial, not just the unblinding piece, not just the, the temperature excursion piece, but improper informed consent, the, the fabrication, the falsification of data, the not reporting serious adverse events and following up on those in a timely manner, the one that, that I brought up this day had not been followed up on in 11 days. And I just wanted to make it very clear to Ventavia that this was violating so many federal regulations that if we were ever inspected by the FDA that I had no doubt that there would be official action indicated and that they would more than likely immediately stop Ventavia from enrolling in any other study, which they should have. That, that's exactly what should have happened. You're, you're saying they <clears throat> would have come in and shut down the company across the board? I believe so, yes, yes, because this isn't, what I'm finding and what I was finding in in Pfizer's vaccine study was what I was finding in every other study that I was looking at and that I was I was managing and overseeing. So not just, you know, I guess that's not in anybody's defense, but it was happening across the board. It was systemic for sure. And you've worked <clears throat> at other companies that have run clinical trials, correct? Absolutely. And, yeah. and like, I'm sure they all run into occasional problems and so forth. Sure. What was so different about Ventavia? There are mistakes, we're human, right? Yeah. There are mistakes that are gonna be made. I've missed signatures before on consent forms in the 20 years that I've been doing this. I will never forget a time when I dispensed a wrong medication to one of my patients. Now, there's a process that we had in place, luckily, to make sure that I had somebody check me in that check process, that medication didn't get to the patient. But I made a mistake, and we made sure that the patient was safe by having this plan in place to ensure that there was somebody to check me. Ventavia had none of that. It was just fly by the seat of your pants. This isn't a, a typical clinical trial. This is a factory, in and out, in and out, in and out. We don't care. They had no regard for patients, and that's what I've just been screaming from the top of my lungs for so long for somebody to please hear me because these are people that are volunteering themselves 
to research, and they deserve more respect than that. Yeah, and, and on the <clears throat> informed consent form that Pfizer provided for the COVID-19 vaccine, knowing what we know today, do you feel like that was a proper informed consent? Um, you know, what kind of things were included on it? Oh, you know, there's always, you know, kind of like a, when you're when you're hired for a new company and at the at the very end next to the asterisk, they'll tell you other duties as assigned. Those are how how informed consent forms are kind of laid out sometimes, too. It, these are risks that um, are anticipated. For example, the systemic reaction that you would get after an uh, injection like, um, you know, redness. Um, fever, body aches, headache, those types of, of things and reactions that you would expect from an inoculation. But then there's that little asterisk down at the bottom that says, you know, other adverse events that are unknown. So it's really hard to say, you know, was it a, was it a properly um, written informed consent? I would say, you know, they, they had an investigate, or excuse me, uh, a regulatory body that was in charge of making sure that informed consents were, you know, available, that they were working under the correct protocol. Um, so, yes, I would say that it was written appropriately. Was it administered correctly? No. Okay. Um, and when you talk about follow up with the adverse events and mm -hmm. and just go back and walk us through more of what was happening <clears throat> with the, the patients in the trial. I was not patient facing, so I didn't see and, and speak to a lot of patients directly. So that was the job of the clinical research coordinator and it should have been the job of the principal investigator, the doctor, the study doctor to oversee these patients and the problems. What I was being alerted to more um, directly was, was from Pfizer in that the data that was in their database was missing. So um, something would be collected at the site level and then manually entered into Pfizer's database, but it wasn't a complete, um, a complete picture. They would report an adverse event or a serious adverse event, and for example, wouldn't follow up on that for some time. So you have, you know, a serious adverse event reported, but information being asked by the sponsor repeatedly. We need to know, and the sponsor is Pfizer, we need to know what's going on. Let us know, is this patient still in the hospital? Um, and, and Ventavi was just so busy seeing those patients in and out the door that they weren't able to follow up on emails, phone calls that the, the site was getting from patients directly. You know, I, I actually took one of those calls and a patient was having a problem and it, it was um, with a motion in her arm and tried to get a hold of the principal investigator because he was very rarely on site. Um, so just situations like that, but so many that you just couldn't keep, you couldn't keep track, couldn't keep track of them. We did not have enough staff. And eventually, you know, they, they started bringing in family members, um, the two owners of the company, their husbands worked there. I just found today where one of the owners of, of the company's husband was changing the medical history on a patient that um, 
on a patient of mine at the, uh, the Fort Worth site that had died. I, and I just felt I haven't even had a chance to fully like research that yet. But I'm like, why is he? Editing <coughs> medical records after the fact. Editing a medical record at any point. He's not trained. He's not added to the delegation of authority log, which is a regulatory document that has to be uh, completed by the study doctor. And, and why Pfizer is responsible for this is because they should have been there making sure that all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed and they failed. And I think that that has a lot to do with the, the demographic of patients in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We, and research is, is typically looked at favorably in, in our community and Pfizer and Ventavia were directly targeting our minority demographic and our high-risk patients, which included, you know, our healthcare workers, our first responders were, were something that Pfizer was really after. They were really looking for that patient population and... Why do you think that is? <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to speculate. There. Yeah, I'm going to have to speculate because per FDA's guidance when, and this was for any of the vaccine candidates, you know, they, they designed a, a document, a guidance document for how the vaccines and the clinical trials should be designed. The FDA needed to know, wanted to know how this vaccine um, affected and how um, how efficacious it was in, in those populations. So that's not unusual, but what's unusual is for a CRO like Icon and a pharma company like Pfizer to have so much data that's outstanding, so many queries that are outstanding, so much, you know, just chaos in their study that they would keep giving Ventavia more and more patients if they could enroll those minority demographic, our, our frontline healthcare workers and those that were at high risk. Okay, so it sounds like they had, it, it almost, you're describing a situation in my mind where the FDA has given marching orders to Pfizer to enroll these certain demographics and they're in turn handing it off down to the clinics, telling them to go enroll these people, and the clinics themselves are getting paid by the enrollment, not necessarily by the follow-up and following proper procedures. So in a way, it almost seems like the financial incentives enabled this, uh, this kind of behavior. From the site level, absolutely, absolutely. That was a, a driver. Um, you know, to, to be a, a high enroller in a clinical trial mm -hmm. is, is and can be a, a, a great thing if you're managing the trial properly and you're ensuring that the safety of the patients is your number one priority, but this wasn't. It wasn't considered, um, and, and it shows in the number of just adverse events and serious adverse events that were happening at my sites in particular. And there comes a point when, when those serious adverse events stop. So in the, in the beginning of the trial, you have all these reports of you know, adverse events, serious adverse events. When I started working at Ventavia, that was one of my complaints, was that we were not 
following up on these reported adverse events correctly from what was coming in um, from phone calls and you know uh, different sources <clears throat> but then those again they stopped they stopped happening so there were a lot of, of serious adverse events at my site then those kind of go away and that's when I come in and I say why are we not collecting this data why are you not following up on a serious adverse event and it's been 11 days that's a problem so that's kind of been one of, of the theories that's that I've seen kind of going around, you know, in just this recent release. But again, you know, data going through that data is is, is a challenge. And what I've also found is that in in a lot of cases, what's been reported by Pfizer to the United States Food and Drug Administration is completely different to what's being reported to the EMA, for example. And I'm finding that in in documents every day. Pfizer is saying that there were 153 clinical trial sites that enrolled the 44,000 patients. What I'm saying, I looked at Ventavia's website just recently and there was a picture of an award that was given by Pfizer for their efforts in the vaccine trial. And when I zoomed in on this picture, it the number was 154, not 153. So the first place that I looked was the New England Journal of, of Medicine <clears throat> publication from back in December, I believe it was. And I started looking at the authors. And I looked at the first author, and that was the principal investigator at the clinical trial site in Argentina where there was over 5,000 clinical trial patients that were enrolled. The next author that I looked at was one that wasn't listed in the clinical trial documents that were released to one of the regulatory authorities. But in another document, I found that he had actually been enrolling in this clinical trial, and his site number is 1041 which is listed in some places, but not in others. So why are they hiding that? Hmm. And I think, um, you know, it, again, it takes so long to go through this data and, and trying to, you know, make sense of not just um, the case report forms for the individual patients, but also, you know, the, the safety and the efficacy and, you know, going through all these clinical trial sites. And I'm looking at their their resumes and their financial disclosures. And it, it just takes a long time, but I think, I think there may be one other site out there that, that hasn't been reported. And it just suggests that maybe there's something in there that they, they had to hide. That's the only thing. I mean, it, there have been so many, so many organizations that have called for transparency in clinical trials for years. And that's really, um, that's really my, my goal, my end goal in all of this. One is to have Ventavia stop enrolling patients in studies until somebody gets out there and investigates and ensures that these patients are safe. Two, for there to be some change in 
the way that we get a, drugs approved in the United States mm -hmm. to have this, you know, process where the pharma company pays user fees to, you know, basically themselves yeah. to, and, and, you know, it just, it has to change. That's, that's got to change. There has to be some standardization in the way that the sites collect data, the way that that data is presented to the pharmaceutical company, and the way the pharmaceutical company has an opportunity to clean that data and make it look any way that they want to before they send it <clears throat> to the FDA for approval. That's what happens. And I don't think people understand that. And it's really scary as hell. We've got Maddie DeGray, who's in one of the younger uh, mm -hmm. Pfizer trials, who was injured. She's paralyzed in a wheelchair, and they have her listed as basically having a stomach ache. Yeah, I think she has an NG tube, too. Yeah, and that's, you know, that that's part of the whole data cleaning process. You know, in the way that the clinical trial protocol was designed, they can manipulate um, and design these trials in a way where data that's needed for, for patient safety, it can be just... Wiped away, and that's even if it makes it to Pfizer in the first place, because what you've just described exactly. is a situation exactly. where it's not even being collected or followed up on. You're right, you're right. And, and I watched Pfizer push so hard, um, Ventavia, and I imagine that if this misconduct happened at, at Ventavia, surely that it happened elsewhere. It had to have, it had to have. We've, we've also got the situation where <clears throat> it's a revolving door. The people in the regulatory companies know if they do a solid for you know, <laughs> one of the drug companies, they can get the $250,000, $350,000 a year consulting job down the road mm -hmm. and life's gonna be good for them. Um, it, is that, do you think there was collaboration between the regulators and Pfizer, between the regulators and Ventavia? I don't know that there was, you know, collusion between the, the you know, FDA themselves and Ventavia, okay. but I'm pretty damn sure that, you know, it's not just a coincidence that I call and speak to somebody at Pfizer and then I file a complaint. Um, or excuse me, you know, call the FDA and file a complaint against Ventavia for a Pfizer study. And just a few hours later, Ventavia fires me. I think the FDA contacted um, Pfizer and Pfizer had a direct line to anybody really at, um, at the company at Ventavia. And you told me another story when you were on with Reiner giving testimony mm -hmm. for the grand jury, mm -hmm. in the middle of that interview, you got a, you started getting phone calls. Would you walk through that? I feel like just targeted in terms of, you know, my internet connections. I've had a million weird things happen and we can kind of go back to that. But after my FDA complaint, after the FDA called me on the 29th of October to go over that complaint in detail. On October 9th, I started getting phone calls from an unknown number on my personal cell phone number. Those were from Pfizer's attorney, actually. He called my phone repeatedly, you know, three or four times from an unknown a number I didn't recognize, so I didn't answer. And when I didn't answer, he finally started to text message me 
And the first text message, he introduced himself, and it, the text message read, Miss Jackson, my name is Mark Barnes. I'm Pfizer's attorney, and I would like to talk to you about the problems that you have relayed about the clinical trial. And so my first question to him was, Mr. Barnes, how did you know my name was Miss Jackson? And his response was that he just assumed that my name was Miss Jackson. And so my next question was, well, how did you get my phone number? This is my personal cell phone. How did you get it? And he said that he got it from a Pfizer employee that I spoke to in September, right after I was fired which was interesting because I didn't give that Pfizer employee my personal cell phone number either. I called from my husband's work phone number and that number was unlisted. It didn't identify the person or the caller. I'd made multiple attempts from the 17th of September through um, like two or three times, tried to call this Pfizer representative. He was a, our direct contact, a, lia a liaison if you will. So direct Pfizer employee, and I tried to call him several times from my husband's phone number to, to tell him what I was finding at Ventavia. Never got a hold of him. I did never leave a message. So I found it really interesting that he you know, called me the day after I was fired. I never told him what my name was. He never asked what my name was, just what my problems were, and was really worried about whether or not I'd contacted the FDA. And so I told this liaison with Pfizer that I did contact the FDA and the conversation was brief. You know, again, I didn't tell him who I was, but it was an, it was an anonymous complaint okay. in the story with him. But Mark Barnes, Pfizer's attorney, said that he got my phone number from the gentleman I made the anonymous complaint to, which I knew was a lie. And so I told Mark Barnes this, you know, I didn't give him my phone number. And now my, I'm curious to know who, who these other people are because there was a, a part in the text message where he said, me and others want to talk to you about it. That's, what it. that's what it was, me and others. So when he said others, that kind of, it just made me feel a certain way. You know, like, like that was a word used to intimidate me. So when I asked him, what do you mean, who do you mean by others? He just said, me and other regulatory um, compliance people. When you look at the text message and you read it, it does really genuinely, genuinely look like Mr. Barnes might be concerned and wanting to follow up and do his diligence and, and the right thing. But when you couple the, the words that he used, the assumption of my name and the mention of other people with back-to-back -back phone calls that I didn't answer. It just made me feel like, like he was using those calls and the you know, text message and words that he chose to intimidate me. I, it, you know, if, if, in my mind, if you're an attorney at his caliber and you have a question for somebody that is a potential you know, whistleblower in a trial that you would wanna send me something more professional like, you know, a letter on your letterhead, you know, or, you know, well, something and, like that. And the question is still outstanding, like where did they get the number? 
Yeah, yeah, I think really, I mean, this is again, just an assumption, but I think that after I contacted the FDA, that they contacted Pfizer and Pfizer contacted Ventavia and that's why I was fired. Okay. okay, so then take us through kind of what other interactions you've had with the FDA and the regulatory agencies after filing the complaint. One phone call with the FDA on the 29th of October, I spoke to an inspector Cannon for a little over an hour about the problems that I was seeing. We went over every bullet in my complaint. I think there were 14 different action items, if you will. And that's the last time I've heard from the FDA. Okay, and I think I saw the, le the response to that. They <clears throat> had them and had given out action items and kind of let you know, hey, we've got your complaint. We're not gonna yes. tell you the outcome of it. If you wanna mm -hmm. know how it turned out, file a FOIA request. Sure, yeah. Okay. Yep, that's the last time I've heard from the FDA. Once I realized that the FDA was not going to take any action and Pfizer oh, was awarding Ventavia with new clinical trials, new studies to run on our adolescents, on our children, in pregnant women, and in new indications such as, you know, they, they were doing some RSV studies, but given more vaccine trials to other sponsors that were vaccine, COVID vaccine candidates like Novavax and J&J um, and um, Moderna even. Ventavia is participating. <clears throat> Ventavia is participating in every one of the vaccine candidates for COVID-19. So we might be seeing this across the board. You are seeing it across the board. I have documentation and internal company documents. Everything that I have on the Pfizer trial, I have on every other one of the trials as well. And given this is a brand new mRNA technology that works unlike any other vaccine, so much so that the CDC had to change the definition of what it means to be vaccinated. Should we be concerned? 100%, yes. Yes. What's concerning me most at the moment, and it's like always in the back, <clears throat> back of my head, I, I find myself up, you know, until four or five o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, shoot, my daughter's gonna be up, you know, my son's gonna be up for school. In like an hour, I better get some sleep, but it's just like I told you, when you, when you are following a clinical trial from the start through the completion of the study, it should tell a story uh, of their journey in the study. And these stories and their journey just does not make sense to me for a lot of reasons, you know, one, again, it's, it's, the, it's Pfizer's database, how they created that database, and certain data points that they're capturing and others that they're not, that you need to be able to, to tell that story again. You know, um, data managers asking Ventavia to change diagnosis of a hospitalization, and you know, to Ventavia's credit, they, they reply back and say, we can't change a diagnosis of a hospitalization. That's what the patient was diagnosed with and we can't do that. So 
again, that, that is to Ventavia's credit that they didn't do that in this one particular case that I'm looking at. But, <clears throat> you know, we talked a little bit about Ventavia's family members working on the study. And I just saw Venta one of Ventavia's owner's husbands changing medical history on one of my patients that died. And <clears throat> it, you, just don't, you just don't do that. There's <clears throat> lots of conflicts of interest there. The new CEO, actually, at Ventavia, Marty Anderson, is a clinical trial participant at Ventavia herself. And so are her sons. In? In Pfizer's vaccine trial, yes. Yes. So, I mean, that, that's, that's happened all over. They were enrolling employees in the clinical trial. And so when I look at that, I always, and I guess this is, there's a huge conflict of interest. <clears throat> Absolutely. Did they get to pick which which arm of the study they were in? Yeah. You know, in the in the beginning, the mainstream media was responsible for putting so much fear in people of this virus, and if if, if you get it, you're going to die. And people were just so tuned into that. So at that time, I'm wondering. You know, did Marty Anderson and her sons get to choose the vaccine? You know, did they get to pick what they wanted to, to receive in the study? Or maybe they knew there were dangers and risks that were too great for them and they picked the vaccine or the, the placebo. I don't know, but, it, but I know that they should not have been in the trial per Pfizer's own protocol. How they could have people involved in administering, deploying, and recording the trials also participating and receiving financial benefit somewhere in the neighborhood of ten thousand dollars per person is right. just yeah and that's that's purely an estimate i don't want to i don't want to yeah. get in trouble for saying that by some fact checker or somebody but yeah that and <clears throat> you know like i said the the chief executive officer the ceo's mother was in charge of all the finances she was the only one of the directors that had access to the clinical trial budget and the clinical trial agreements. I was interested in seeing those. One, because you know that, that's what I did. I was a director of operations. I wasn't, you know, <clears throat> I helped with those two aspects of a clinical trial, and and it helps when I'm managing the day to day to know that to know the what the budget looks like. So I know if there's something that needed to be billed separately. So just their 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 business process didn't make sense to me at all. So after I realized that. The FDA wasn't going to take any action against Ventavia. I, with the help of a group of attorneys, <clears throat> filed a false claims act case. When I filed the false claims act case, it immediately, by order of the court, went under seal, meaning that no, that I couldn't talk about, I couldn't talk about the lawsuit. The original <clears throat> filing, again, <clears throat> that was in January of 21. The government had an initial 60 days to investigate the allegations that I made. Mm -hmm. Never did. Never did. What they did do was request seal extension after seal extension after seal extension without ever investigating, not one time going to Bentavia's clinical trial sites, even after I gave them additional information on other studies that they were participating in, including Moderna and Novavax and J&J &J and, you know, 
these vaccines in our youth and in our pregnant women and how they were targeting minorities. So they had every piece of information that I just handed to them, you know? And it wasn't until, well, in January of 2022, a full year later, over a year, they, they decided to decline intervention, which means they weren't going to help me investigate the, the claims. So this is in regards to your complaint that you filed that they kept extending the seal, meaning we want to keep this under wraps and not let yes. this be accessible to FOIA requests. A year later, mm -hmm. they're not going to look at it. They're not going to look at it, no. They haven't looked at it, and I don't ever anticipate them, them doing that. Um, they declined to intervene in the case, meaning I have an opportunity to move forward with a case on my own. In January of 2022, in February, they finally unsealed it. So the court documents, some of them, not all of them, okay. none that you will ever be able to FOIA either. They will remain under seal. I don't even know what those are. You know, I'm sure there's been some, you know. Are these documents that they collected? No, these would, these would probably be inner, inner you know, um, agency. Mm -hmm. okay. <clears throat> yeah, I don't even know what they are. There are some documents that remain under seal that I'm not, a, I'm not aware of what they are. So in February, it became unsealed. And at that point, I decided to take the case on myself. So we filed the same action just without knowing that the government's going to help me do it. And that's where most of the cases tend to be successful is if you have the backing of the government. But at this point, I don't want their help, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't want them helping because they're hiding. They seem complicit. <clears throat> exactly, they are complicit. I have no doubt. I'm Come after me if you want to say that. Um, it doesn't matter. I am 100% certain that they are complicit. Otherwise, why wouldn't they investigate? Why did they allow Pfizer to continue enrolling patients in these studies and, and different age groups? And you have information in your hand that shows willful misconduct, fraud in a clinical trial. The vaccine is misbranded and it needs to come off the market immediately. But I'm moving forward with a lawsuit I, that, that's been filed. The defendants, Ventavia, Icon, and Pfizer have all been served. And the dollar amount on that lawsuit is $2 billion. Billion dollars, <clears throat> which doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the vaccine injured. And that's exactly where that money's gonna go if I'm successful. I never met anyone in the clinical trial at Ventavia personally that was injured, but you know, these, there, there are people, they have voices and they are being heard finally. So, you know, death has been reported. There's so many, I, I can't even begin to count. Yeah, I, I mean, you follow some of the same accounts that I do on Twitter mm -hmm. and this, this spike protein that they're inducing the body to produce seems to just attack all, yes, it seems to trigger all the signs of aging, all of the markers of aging, and it's disrupting the immune system. The CDC told us that it doesn't change DNA, and now we've got studies coming out that shows six hours later it's changed, it's reverse, reverse transcribed yeah. into the liver cells, and <clears throat> it's like, where does this That's thing That's interesting that, that, you, that you bring up the liver, because 
In one of my cases at Ventavia's clinical trial sites, there was a female patient that was originally randomized to receive placebo and at some point became unblinded and eligible to be vaccinated. So she got dose, which would have been dose three and four because her first was placebo, her second was placebo. Dose one received dose two and shortly after dose two becomes ill. <clears throat> and that's why these case, um, case report forms that have been released that are individual documents, documents of the patient's story in the trial are not matching what are on the, the site level documents because I have some of those documents and I know that they don't match. And I handed those over. So again, there's your, there's your evidence there. But um, in looking at this patient, she gets ill, she's hospitalized, becomes septic and has a diagnosis of hepatocellular injury. Well, in the case report form, and I just started looking at this recently, and then I, I, I feel like I get sidetracked a lot, but there's a, a, a audit trail where, again, the diagnosis is, they're, they're being asked to change the diagnosis. By Pfizer? Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing, I'm seeing it, you know, repeatedly come up in the documents that I'm looking at that they are doing exactly what my industry knows as data cleaning. And I'm, I've, I've sent a tweet out today asking for people in my industry to speak up because I'm not the only regional director. I'm not the only <clears throat> clinical trial professional that worked on this vaccine study where there were problems. You know, I'm sure of it. All the employees at Ventavia should come forward. All the clinical research associates with ICON should come forward. And certainly anybody within Pfizer that has any information needs to come forward. It's time for like backup, you know? I mean, we, I know what went on in Pfizer's study was fraud. Pfizer knows what went on in their own study was fraudulent. And so does our United States government. And I've been approached by many, many groups and other regulatory bodies, and I'm happy to, to say that, you know, I've, I've signed an affidavit for, with other countries in helping them pursue getting this vaccine off the market immediately. And the, the fact is, Pfizer is still pushing to not only go after younger and younger age groups, but they want infants to be injected with this so that they can get it included in the recommended schedule, which just generates mm -hmm. perpetual income <clears throat> for Pfizer. Sure, sure. I can't imagine that happening. Why is that? I mean, I, I'm sure it will, but I just, because I know that, that babies are going to be injured and I know that babies are going to die and I can't imagine that <laughs> you know it's going to happen it's something new every single day I'm, I'm not just saying that every day I find something like today I found um, Olivia's husband changing medical history on one of my patients you should see my office it looked like a tornado blew up in there but I mean I'm going through these this data and it takes so long. You know, it's not in order. The CRFs, the case report forms, are not in any particular order. 
You mentioned this to me. It's mm -hmm. like they mm -hmm. rearranged the order to make it difficult. I don't know if they did that. Like, I just, I can't imagine them. Do, maybe I can. I don't know. I don't know what I know anymore. But maybe that's just the way they're printed. I, who the hell knows? But you have to, you know, like page 394 will be associated to page 210. And you, you just have to, I have to correlate them. That's how I get through that. Mm -hmm. I'm old school on paper person. I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm not a doctor. So while I'm very familiar with different disease process, GI, hepatology, vaccines, kind of my specialty, I know how to read what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't like to interpret data and percentages and things like that, or people smarter out there than me, and that's their job, you know, these, <clears throat> these scientists and such. And, and that's why I've been working with them every day you know, certain groups that, you know, we, we talk and go through this data and it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So if people want to join you in that effort, help, you have a website? I, I do. It's, it's, I am Brooke Jackson. Um, it's a funny story how that came about when I first started using Twitter, which wasn't that long ago. And somebody replied to me and said, who is Brooke Jackson? And my husband was, was reading these texts with me, and he goes, well, you are. <laughs> You're Brooke Jackson. It was just kind of like a little silly thing, and he goes, that, that should be your handle. I, I am Brooke Jackson. So that's where that, that came from, a little silly, little silly story. But Twitter's been um, an interesting place. It's a way to get information out there that's important that you won't see on mainstream media. Right. You're not going to see it on Fox or, you know, this other, that other CNN or, you know, and sometimes even on the independent ones, like, you know, no information. I'm not the only whistleblower. There's others out there. I don't like being called the Pfizer whistleblower. You know, I'm talking about clinical trials in general. There's a focus on Pfizer, but I'm seeing things in RSV studies at Ventavia. I'm seeing things in other vaccine candidates like Moderna and Novavax and all these, and, and I'm like, why does nobody hear me? I don't understand why, I mean, I do, but it's still just kind of one of those things that kind of shocks the hell out of you, yeah. you know, that you have all this data, and that's what kind of makes me uh, paranoid. The, you know, the people in charge of protecting us are almost mm -hmm. captured by the drug companies they're supposed to be regulating, yeah. And the simple fact is, there's tens of billions of dollars being made off of this process, and that yeah. Uh, yeah. buys a lot of influence. Certainly does. Yeah. And Pfizer will tell you on, the, or excuse me, the, um, FDA will tell you on their own website that we rely on the data from the sponsors to determine whether a drug should be approved or not. They tell you on their website. That's their process. So. Again, I think what I'm calling for is that there has to be a change in that process. You know, they can't, regulatory authorities can't get involved at the end after mm -hmm. the big pharma company has an opportunity to manipulate the data. You know, if, if the FDA wants to know what the true Pfizer data looks like, then they need to go to every single one of the clinical trial sites because it'll look way different. And I, and I would even argue that that data should be publicized, especially <coughs> with the mRNA vaccines, because they were publicly Absolutely. funded in the first place. Some, you know, yes, yep. 
Moderna is publicly funded. I've given my attorney information on that. They, um, I'm not filing another false claim in that case because it's not going to go anywhere and it's very stressful to go through that process. But there's a case out there for somebody to take on and I'll happily give them the data. You know, this Moderna vaccine is, in terms of the data from Ventavia, if they're going to approve it, then they're approving it based on fraudulent data because Moderna's using it. Moderna's using Ventavia's data and it's fraudulent. You were saying, you know, that, that the site level data should be something that's made available. I 100% agree. And why everything, you know, while everything is moving more electronically for the sites and even for the sites that do things on paper still and even the ones that do it, you know, man or electronically, why not send that document that the site collects right along with your data that you're submitting to the FDA in, in the form of an electronic data capture form. So that people could trace yeah. the process of- it's super, it would be super data. easy. Here's what we did yeah. to collate it and present it, yes. but you have the source. Yep. Okay, and you know, the argument that I've heard from some of the scientists on Twitter who are looking through this data is this is a new technology. The people within the FDA approving this, they have very much a check off the boxes and they use the process for a vaccine versus a gene therapy, which is mm -hmm. seemingly a huge mistake. Yes. And, and the argument that they're making is these people aren't smart enough to understand all the implications of what this data means, what they're approving, and that's why it needs to be public. How scary is that? Hmm? How scary is that? Yeah, it is. You know? Yeah. It is. It just shows that they are, have pushed this thing onto hundreds of millions of people blindly, and we're going to find out how it works out. Not just pushed it out there and said, we, we believe that this is safe and effective, which we've proven otherwise. Otherwise. But we're, now we're going we're gonna to mandate that you take this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I... I I can't ever imagine things being the same again. Some good, right? I think this, a lot of change, a lot of good change is going to come, but a lot of bad too. Yeah. And and trust has been broken, and that's something I have a hard time giving back. And I think millions of people will too. I think so too. Yeah, we're seeing vaccination rates not even for mRNA, yeah. but the traditional vaccines yeah. decline because of. Uh, you know, the, the hospitals, the doctors have taken trust that is built up over a century and decimated it over one product. Absolutely. So. Shame on them. Yeah. And then at the same time, it's come out, uh, Biden really, uh, the Biden administration has given over a billion dollars to the media companies. Now, <laughs> the ones we expect, CNN and, yeah. and MSNBC and NBC and all that. Mm -hmm but also Fox News and Newsmax in order, they were given this money to promote and portray the vaccines in a positive light. So there's this propaganda aspect to all of this as well. For sure, yes, yes. The article that was released in, in the BMJ, a peer-reviewed medical journal that's, what, 100 years old? I can't remember exactly, but that, that that article immediately was censored 
and slapped with a missing context label for, you know, just showing documents and telling a story. Not my story, but showing documents of what I reported to the FDA. It's wild, wild. I have a little different of a perspective because I have access to the data and a knowledge about clinical trials that most people do not. I, 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 really, I really don't know. I've always been very careful not to, because I'm not a doctor, because I'm not a scientist, not to give people medical advice. You know, I, I, I have said before to, if you have a primary care provider or a, a family physician that you trust to follow their guidance, but I, I don't know anymore. I don't, I really don't. I don't, I don't even trust my own government anymore. I've, I've seen what's happened to science and clinical trials and regulatory bodies over the last year and a half. And I, I don't like, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like what's happened to me and the intimidation tactics and you know the things that are being done to me right at this moment to keep me quiet. I, I, I don't like it, and but also at the same time I'm not going to stand for it. You know, it just makes me want to get my information out there to more people. So that that's really my goal. You know, I I appreciate hearing from people that I'm brave and sorry. <laughs> I appreciate the feedback from people thanking me for coming forward. And I guess my message for anybody is if there are more people out there that have information that they think may not matter or they think, you know, is the key to whatever, just come forward. You know, there, there are people out there that are willing to help. You know, while some days I feel alone, most of the days I don't because I have support of my family and friends and people like yourself. I know that it's scary to come forward when you have information that, <laughs> you know, potentially has, has the ability to affect so many things. But, you know, people are, people are dying and people are being injured. And maybe it's because of the vaccine. Maybe it's not. I, I don't want to get and go down that road, mm -hmm. um, but the information is vital. So we are all able to make a fully informed decision, which goes back to that informed consent and why it's so important. We have to, we have to know the truth. And if, if anybody out there has, has that, they need to come forward with it. Okay, Brooks Jackson. I am brookjackson.com is yes. where people can find you. Thank you. I think what you're doing is very brave Thank and very you. heroic. And Thank you very much. I appreciate much. you sitting down with us. I appreciate it. People like yourself that, <clears throat> you know, just, uh, and now the dog's out. That wasn't me. Sorry. It's okay. Come on. The mom stare. The death stare. <laughs> we were like 30 seconds away. I know. <laughs> I ruined it. School. I understand how it goes. Yeah, she just got months. out of school. Don't put that mom death stare on video.
Okay. Yeah.